You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to a movie reviewing, reappraising, and genre-hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. This is Be Real. My name is Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. Oh, fine people. Tis the holiday season. Uh, one of the holidays. The start of the holiday season? How do, you, how do you view this time of year, Noah? Let's get real interesting real fast. It's all one thing after Yom Kippur for me. Okay, so this is not the start of your holiday season. No, we're we're nearing the... We're well into it. Yeah, we're nearing the, the end, actually. If you never listened to this show before, around Thanksgiving in, in years past, we've teed up some ill-advised and moderately well-listened-to episodes that we've called Megapods. What we have never done is um, actually talked about Thanksgiving movies, which is... When I first like was thinking about this idea, I'm like, well, that will never work. There, you know, like if you if I pitched Noah on Christmas movies, he would send me back too broad, period, and not talk to me for the rest of the day. But Thanksgiving movies, there's not that many, right? There's only like four, yeah, yeah, maybe like seven. Well, we can talk about other options at the end if we like. Um, but here we are with three movies about a. Uh, uh, relatively uncinematic holiday um that if you not don't pay attention to the marketing of the films you may just think are christmas films which is how i viewed a couple of these i don't know about you man yeah they all well ice storm doesn't give a shit about the holidays the fact that it's thanksgiving is pretty (laughs) pretty loose um yeah but planes trains and automobiles and home for the holidays yeah they're they're marketing you know it's like somewhere between halloween and new year's and trying to get somewhere and i guess you could kind of swap in sort of whatever i really remember seeing holly hunter in that um kind of magenta coat like looking up as though she's checking like a departure arrival time sign at a airport and and always thinking like that's for sure a christmas movie and tis not no and it's interesting too, like how seriously each film kind of takes the meal and the preparation for the meal. You know, mm-hmm. they all seem to have that scene where like some put upon housewife like rips a frozen turkey from the clutches of the ice box. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's. But I would say the only one of them kind of has like a climactic, scene like dinner sequence. Let me ask you this, Chance. Yes, sir. Unless you had a, a better question. I Roll the dice. <laughs> I was just going to say that I talked to my mom right before this, and I was like, because I'm about to go to Nebraska for a, for a Thanksgiving, for the having, having done holidays with the family in two years. Um, and she was like, well, do you need to watch movies over Thanksgiving? Um, or she's referring to the megapods that we right. previously Right, she had this, this trauma from previous years. Right, <laughs> where three years in a row we watched six movies on like the Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of Thanksgiving. And she's like, because really, if you need to go off for a while and watch Teenage Mega Ninja Turtles, you can. <laughs> Sorry, it was that is so quote. funny and condescending and accurate. <laughs> and I did, I did quote her correctly, Teenage Mega Ninja Turtles. 
Incredible. Um, yeah. So I don't know if that was better than what you were going to say, but please proceed. Oh, I was just going to ask you about certain holiday traditions, and I feel like you got to the the core of that even faster. Um, sure. Well, I was going to ask you more specifically what your favorite yams. Thanksgiving stop. It's true. It's yams. Like the traditional, like Julia Child yams with the little marshmallows on top. That, that's exactly right. Candied yams. Incredible! What a weird, <laughs> what a weird thing. What a it's like a five year old's favorite Thanksgiving uh, thing, and it is still mine, unfortunately. What about you? Well, shout out first to I talked to my mother earlier too, and shout out to her for for the fifteenth straight year in a row. So my mother made the tactical error one year uh, of changing like the traditional recipe for the stuffing that she makes every single year, like clockwork and the people who attended the dinner, I think it was just me and my dad, uh, maybe my brother may have been before his time. Um, we were all so horrified that she had made this like wild rice stuffing instead of her traditional, Ah. like bread crumbs and apples and sausage and apricots. And it's really good. Um, that sounds good. So 15 years, and her penance for doing that was 15 years plus in the future. I always say, you're not going to make that wild rice stuff again. Uh, wow. So, really holding on to that one. Really, she I made mean, a tactical air 15 years ago. It was, one of the, it was one of the worst mistakes she's ever made. That's so funny. I love oh, it. man. Love you, Mom. You want to get into these movies, buddy? Please. Okay. Chronological order. That means we start with Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, 1987. A Chicago advertising man must struggle to travel home from New York for Thanksgiving with a lovable oaf of a shower curtain ring salesman as his only companion. During holiday travel, some people get delirious. Some get delayed. And some get (laughs) Del Griffin. American Light and Fixture, Director of Sales, Shower Curtain Ring Division. Neil Page got all three. I was on my way home to spend a nice holiday with my family. Instead, I'm in a motel bed with a stranger. So instead of Thanksgiving with his family, he's spending three days with the turkey. Happy clams just whistling down the road. Flintstones, meet the Flintstones, and the Martone family. Paramount Pictures presents Wilma! Steve Martin. You ever been to Hawaii? Yeah. You see Don Ho while you were there? See the second show, that's the best one. Is that right? Yeah. John Candy. Why are you holding my hand? The line on this movie when it came out in 87 was every critic in the world being like, oh, John Hughes made a movie not with teenagers, because this would have been post-Ferris, post-Weird Science, post-Pretty in Pink, um, 16 Candles, Breakfast Club. It's like the a year to two years after all of those. Um, a pretty easy thing to say, but I do think um, that the movie makes good use of um, just how weird and sweaty and ill-equipped adults could be, despite the coats and hats they may wear. 
Totally. Yeah. And I think he, this isn't not a movie about teenagers. It's just a movie about these like, you know, arrested development adults who are going through the motions of trying to pretend they are not teenagers. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think that he's really clever in the way he kind of writes around that. Even if it's, you know, even that opening scene I think is really funny where they're sort of waiting for this boss who's also just like a big idiot who can't make a decision on the last like fiscal day of the year before the big sales or whatever. Uh, There's waiting for this guy to make a call so they can go to the airport and get home for the holidays. And it's just like this tension, almost like, you know, it reminded me of some of the other Hughesy and like, you know, people waiting in a classroom for the bell to ring so they can like get on with the business of being them. Uh, and I think right. he, the translation, and I think you're right, this is an interesting moment in his career, but I think this movie, you can see a kind of like opening doors to, you know, Uncle Buck, Christmas Vacation, Home Alone kind of things it's like here here is the ridiculousness that you saw from my high school movies but that extends into the world yeah what's funny is he's getting into the family space except this is like against all odds an r-rated movie that's not about families it's just about like two men on the road who may or may not have them well that's what's so weird about this movie the only reason it's rated r is because of one scene which I personally, I'm very admiring of. Like, I mean, they... I love that. I love that as a move. But like, you can see how Hughes is smart enough to know that you can cut out that fucking scene and put this on network television as a movie Forever. of the week. For yeah, that's true. But yeah, it could could easily be PG, except Neil Page has to get so 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 mad at the he's a righteous dude receptionist from <laughs> Ferris Bueller playing a similarly uh, uh, bureaucratic role. Yeah, yeah, that he has to yell fuck thirty times, and I it, I think I think it's brave. Since you brought up the opening scene, I wanted to talk about. So on the one hand, this is like a. It's a slapstick movie out and out, right? They're just like running to train tr- planes and trains and automobiles and they crash and they break down. And um, yes, you just did a little imitation of Steve Martin's like weird running in place run where he's going as fast as he can and it's all high knees. It's kind of like Dan Aykroyd dancing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's all like wrists and knees or like the <laughs> thing that's carrying him forward. It's hilarious. Um. But in another way, I know like minimal slapstick is kind of a paradox, but it is sort of a minimal movie. Like that whole opening set piece um, could easily be like a silent film if they didn't need the exposition of uh, Neil saying that he's going home to to the guy at the elevator. Otherwise, it could be Chaplin or Keaton. And the honestly, the the little bit that I love is when uh, Dell. John Candy steals his cab. You just get like the one flickering moment of him, you know, him going, oh, like his face in the window and he's gone, which is so like cartoonish, but quick. And you're like, will we see this weird man again? And of course, you know, you will, but like it's played so slimly. I think it's also brilliant to cast Kevin Bacon, who's a pretty famous actor at this point. Uh, True. Footloose in this definitely come out, non-speaking right? role. Yeah. Wow. Be- and I do believe that Kevin Bacon could beat Steve Martin in a foot race. Oh, totally. 
just having seen. Steve Martin's been 65 years old for 50 years. Yeah. So you think he, would you date him at 65 in this? I, I guess he's supposed to be like 45. A gentleman's 45. A gentleman's 45. But I think that's what's interesting about Steve Martin is that like, he's just sort of dad age. And like, Mm -hmm. he could even now, like in only murders in the building, you know, he could pass for 60. Pass for dad. He could pass for dad, and he's 105. Mm-hmm. I think both of the performances in this movie from Steve Martin and John Candy are really, really good. And I think that John Candy shines more because he has such a heart. Like, you understand right away that Neil has the ability to hurt Dell. Um, and it's, it's like, it's played in kind of a long scene where he's just like, let me tell you what I don't like about you. And Dale's like, oh man, he's just, you know, daggers flying into him. Um, and that basically happens again in the diner where Neil kind of tries to like walk out on him where he like completely lies and says it's easier to travel, uh, as one, um, rather than two. Um, and the twist at the end, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about, um, it it whether it works at all just completely hangs on John Candy being so uh uh warm. Yeah. I was trying to parse like the candy character this time. Because of course I've seen this movie before and you like if you can buy into Candy being just this lovable doofus, then yeah. you can like forgive all manner of sins but i think in this read because i did know the ending um it's kind of interesting to look at him as like a more serious kind of character that's you know gone like has his life is kind of spun out of control and he's he's Mm. with he's doesn't he's homeless for all intents and purposes uh at the end so I don't know. It's kind of fascinating too to look at how much the these two characters are essentially kind of the same guy, just you know, going down to uh, going down a road and it kind of forks. You know, in one case, you know, you kind of burn out and the the structure that you're searching for sort of explodes, and the other one, you kind of live this very John Hughesian suburban, you know, home alone house kind of life. And I think it's a in for that way it's a, a sort of a much darker movie than I think. I don't know. If it's not John Candy, then it's like Death of a Salesman or something. Right. Well, and see Mark, you're the dad in a John Hughes movie, so like no one knows you, your kids can't right. connect to you, <laughs> and you're sort of being explored off to the side of his other twenty movies. Totally. Yeah. I mean, this is finally the movie about like what Kevin McAllister's dad does. Exactly. Yeah, or a, a Clark Griswold business trip uh, yes. with no Cousin Eddie and no fam. Totally. But a Cousin Eddie will always emerge. Like, that is kind of the true John Hughes take on America, is that no matter how comfortable you believe yourself to be because of the money you make, there's always a Cousin Eddie around the corner. You know, we didn't uh, fully uh, pitch the category up front, I don't think these are these are i gotta get home for thanksgiving or do i movies um we were talking about it right before we hit record but that's the that's the thing and this is the most this one is by far the most 
hurry, 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 I got to get home for Thanksgiving. But the or do I kind of just lingers in the Steve Martin character's like personality where he's just like, I think I've been away too long. And it's like, yeah, but okay, so what's taking you back? Um, Why now? Well, yeah, and I think it raises that fundamental question of the thing that you think that you're doing that's giving you success and purpose. Is it actually keeping you from the thing you're after, which is your relationships, your family, stuff like that? Like in many ways, you know, it seems like the whatever job, this this vague marketing job that Steve Martin has, I mean, the movie sort of reaches him at a point where traveling from Chicago to New York in what seems like a monthly or biweekly basis is truly threatening his ability to connect with his family. My favorite moment of acting from Steve Martin in the movie is when he gets on the train in Wichita and he thinks he's all good. And it's like very obviously in that moment, you could just go to the person who hates John Candy because John Candy's such a pest. You know, like there, there's so many comp, like pest comedies, right? Um, uh, like Martin Short and, <laughs> and Charles Grodin and Clifford or Martin Short and Kurt Russell and Captain Ron are two pest comedies I've been thinking of a little bit recently where, you know, the the... <laughs> button up dad guys like finally i'm away from the past but instead of just having that moment he neil page like fully reverts to this kind of new character who carries himself around humans and women differently and like has reset his whole expectations for life he sits down next to this girl and he starts kind of idly chatting with her and it's very clear that the train is like breaking down and he kind of goes his legs are still crossed and his chin's still on his thumb and he goes like Smoke? Did they say the uh, train was smoking? Like, he tries so hard to revert back to where he started the movie. Yeah, it is funny how Steve Martin sort of propels this character. You know, I think you're right, and there's complexity, too, just in the the snapping back that he does towards, like, this is the person that I am in polite society. Like, <laughs> I am successful here. But then I yeah. think, and what's smart about the, you know, the fuck monologue is... This is the moment where, like, he kind of becomes the candy character where it's like, please don't behave that way in front of other people. But, like, to the Neil degree. How may I help you? You can start by wiping that fucking dumbass smile off your rosy fucking cheeks. Then you can give me a fucking automobile, a fucking Datsun, a fucking Toyota, a fucking Mustang, a fucking Buick, four fucking wheels and a seat. I really don't care for the way you're speaking to me. If I were going to make a critique, and this is straight of out of like, yes, no, um, this is straight out of like the 2009 Joe Biden playbook. Trains really draw the short straw in this movie. There's only a train for two minutes. It is mostly automobiles. Um, yeah. If you clock it, which is, I mean, that's these are the decades of... Uh, sort of uh, environmental thinking that we have to we have to get out of it has to be more more trains fewer planes and automobiles that's right i'm not sure that was like a electric bullet train though i think that w- i think somebody's probably i mean the, coal the, in the black Indian. smoke coming out of the top <laughs> of it did not appear to appear to have a pretty heavy carbon footprint but who's to say yeah, the other 
the other train stuff they cut out was a class action lawsuit by Wichita children who'd uh, gotten the black lung. That's so funny, too, and it's such an interesting commentary as well on customer service, which I found particularly potent here in the the 2021 times where, like, so many things are, like, coming at you or, like, require a little bit of jostling to, like, just get it the way you want it to, to be. And conversations with people on phones and phone banks are at home now. Who's to say? But, like, this one was sort of... Like the idea that a company would say, oh, yeah, just like get off our train here that you bought a fucking ticket for and walk this mile across this field. And then like the trucks will pick you up, you know, like right. is that would be a like they haven't they had a train breakdown before. They don't have some contingency plan in place to like get these people to their destination. You know, this nope. is the same. It's the same level of uh, this is the same frustration why I didn't think we uh, should bail out the airlines. Uh, but alas, mm. why would they um, drop them in Wichita? W- w- why would they have taken off to begin with? Great. I'm not great pointing point. holes in the movie. I'm pointing holes in the John Hughes's like obvious satirizing of uh, corporate thinking when it comes to giving people services. Fair enough. I want to make a point that I think you're not going to like, but I do believe in it. Let me just say this. Now, I don't want to say then Midnight Run eats this movie's lunch a year later. But I think Midnight Run kind of, you know, takes a a bite out of the corner of the sandwich. Um, It's one year later. I think it uh, has a lot more kind of zany fun with all the different kinds of travel. Like, trains do not get the short shrift in Midnight Run. And I think it almost, just because it's the same uh, I mean, obviously, there's more of like a violent action. So many more fucks in Midnight Run. Famously, famously, many more fucks in Midnight Run. But it's kind of the same thing. It's like two dudes on the road. One of them's like kind of miserable and just trying to do a job. And the other one is like a stone cold weirdo who knows just what to do to poke at the other guy. And Charles Grodin's character is just like deeper and weirder and more interesting. Um, I just found myself kind of wanting to watch Midnight Run sometimes. Is that, is that okay to say? That's a totally fair criticism, I think. Um, You know, and I think, like I said, I think this movie does less for kind of like that sprawling travel modes of transportation genre than it does for like the Hughes going from high school to suburban hell. Uh, yeah. In in like sort of narrative, uh, his his thematic concerns. Um, But (laughs) yeah, but. But no, I, I take your point. I, I think that, you know, there could have been like a fun, like diner car sequence. It's a in little haphazard sometimes. Yeah. Or easy. I don't know. And they they really like go for the um, the outrageous thing when like the annoying thing could be that much funnier. Mm-hmm. Um, I was texting you about the fact that two of the three of these movies have like sight gags about electric chairs going back and up and down car seats. Like yeah. I think, yeah, car seats. That's what I mean. Um, I think having more fun with the indignities of daily life instead of having them just like driving what is essentially the chassis of a car down the interstate, you know, yeah. just so, so Michael McKean can pull them over for whatever reason. It's like, you could have had more fun in the fact that they like, I don't know, like get a little 
plastic wrapped dinner in the dining car that they like can't eat or something. And then I don't know. I don't know what reason they would have to get off the train, but they, they I, I take your point that the, the plot that's thrown at them is, is easier and less complicated and less fun uh, than a movie like, like midnight run. Okay. Let me ask you another question. Um, as we've already alluded to, I think John Candy acts the shit out of the second layer alienation of this character who, as the movie mounts, if you don't know the twist, and if for some reason you don't want to know the quote-unquote twist of planes, trains, and automobiles, skip ahead, I don't know, three minutes? Um, you realize that he knows all these systems like the back of his hand. He's like, well, if you land at this time, you got to be on the payphone calling the motel or you're never going to get a room 12 miles down the road. But he doesn't have anywhere to go. And if you don't know the ending of the movie, like that's a really kind of weird, interesting, like what's going on with this guy? And I almost wonder if it would be better if instead of having a dead wife, which is, you know, we've made fun of Chris Nolan for this before. Um, Chris Nolan doesn't have a dead wife. He just likes to give other people dead wives. Um, we don't make fun of someone for having a dead wife. No, 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 no. Just thinking it's an idea. Someone that using we the do. trope. Yeah. Does, does does that need to be there? Can't he just be kind of a Willy Loman? Like, can't it just be obvious that he has no one and come to his house at the end? That would be like a little less sweaty, I think. Totally. And there's something fundamentally so interesting about the Del Griffith character in that he's both... Um, the up in the air George Clooney guy that he like knows how to get everywhere, but he's also like not really reaping any of the benefits of knowing these systems that well. Like he doesn't have, like he's got the occasional coupon or whatever, but he's not like a frequent flyer. And he also like, there's something, there's something complicated about the fact that he has too much luggage all the time. He's like carrying <laughs> around this baggage with him, but he has nowhere to put it down. Like that's so, and I it fundamentally know. can't be carried by one person. Yes, his baggage cannot be carried by one person, but he has no permanent home to like put it down. It's yeah. it's so. I, there's something artful about that on a narrative level. Um, that yeah. I would agree. I think you could get rid of the picture of the wife. Or the picture can still be there for all I care. Just don't explain that she's been. I dead don't for know. Eight I years. don't mind the dead wife. Um, what do right. you want it to be that he's just a bad husband because he's never home? He could just have no one. Well, then it's like one hour photo, and who wants that <laughs> fucking movie? No, I don't think you. <laughs> I'm not suggesting this become a Nightcrawler-esque like, portrait of, of the John Candy character. I would love this movie if it were a little less Home Alone and a little bit more Nightcrawler. Just him on the phone with uh, Chalmers' big and tall man store in the Pacific Northwest being like, what are your credit card options? <laughs> oh, no. That's D-E-L-L. Um, okay. I think it's just one L. Oh, is it? Sorry. It's not um, like, dude, you're getting a. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, why don't we tell people how we rate movies on this show and then rate Planes, Trains? On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories. A good or bad for technical quality and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! 
Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. Bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered, unfortunately, include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, Master. Got all that? Time for a rating. No, I think we're basically in agreement that this is... I don't know. Oh, why would I lead in that way? I think that this is a, a good good with the quibbles that I made. Okay, I that, I agree with you. I thought yeah. you were gonna say it was like a bad good. Um, no, I think it's it sometimes I think it's, teeters on bad good, but I think it much like that car, that chassis of that car that's getting them from wherever to Chicago, still drivable. Yeah, it's still drivable. <laughs> <laughs> what is your who's your favorite cameo of like famous character actors? Um, is Dylan Baker a famous character actor? I would put Dylan Baker as like the, the, uh, tobacco hillbilly. Yeah, that's pretty good. And then they ride, they ride in the bed in the truck. I like, uh, Larry Hankin, Mr. Heckles, uh, from Friends, who's Doobie the taxi driver. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He's proud of his town. That's Edie McClurg, the car the car rental agent that we were talking about. Love earlier. her. She's great. Oh wait, what about uh Martin Ferrero, the lawyer from Jurassic Park, as the hotel clerk who takes his watch? Incredible. Still living by that age old code. If it's heavy, it's expensive. Take it as hotel payment. That's it. This guy's economic sense is all over the map. It's all density, baby. It's all about density. <sighs> No Casios. Too light. You want to go to home for the holidays? I mean... Did you get the text? I am as reluctant to talk about this movie as Holly Hunter is to go home for Thanksgiving. Did you get the text I sent you last night? Remind me. If you, if you like, just Google home for the holidays, you know, sometimes they have, like, the people frequently ask drop down. And the first one was, what does home for the holidays mean? (laughs) Yeah, I, I did see that. I, I don't okay. know why someone would ask Text someone that. else that? Well, no, that would be the search. They're, they don't know what the idiom, I guess, means. I know. What, what do you fucking think it means? Now, in a larger yeah, you big sense, idiot. <laughs> that's what this movie's trying to answer. Tell them, tell them what they watched. No. Home, af- home after the holiday. Home- no. Hello, Purim. <laughs> Home for the Holidays, 1995, after losing her job, making out with her soon-to-be former boss. I, I got to quibble with that, too. Oh they make a God. huge a huge deal out of that. But that was like a weird, that was like a snuggle at best. Like, I don't know if that was a make-out. 
Anyway, making out with her soon-to-be former boss and finding out that her daughter plans to spend Thanksgiving with her boyfriend and lose her virginity, uh, Claudia Larson faces spending the holiday with her family. I'm working, studying, struggling year after year. You know how to working, studying, struggling year after year. No matter how hard life is. You're fired, Claudia. I have to. (laughs) No matter how difficult things are. Oh, Mom. Tim, we talked it out like adults because we're not jerks and we fully realize this is a major step. Safely. And not in the car. Happy Thanksgiving, Mom. There's one place you can always go that's worse. Ah, smile, smile. Claudia Larson is going home for the holidays. Henry! I can see your roots, Claudia. When you see your father's organ, he can't keep his hands off it. Dear Lord, we realize just lately everything's been changing too damn fast. And all sorts of things are always the same, even things we hated, like shoveling the turkey and stuffing the snow. This is ridiculous. Aunt Gladys waiting. We gotta go. Come on. Come on, I'm serious. <laughs> you have to soak this whole tablecloth in vinegar and lemon juice now, Mother, and right away. I have to burn it in hell. That's a sporting necklace. This is a film from 1995, directed by uh, Jodie Foster, an actress that you all know. Um, she had directed, I think, just one movie before this, Little Man's Hate, in 1991. Um, Which has the little brother from uh, Ice, Ice Storm, Storm as the titular little man. That's right. Well done. There's a couple things in this movie, that moments that Jodie Foster directs very curiously that are critical, critical moments where I don't know what's going on. And it, it's hugely important for understanding the characters. The first one is this makeout with the boss in the opening scene. Holly Hunter, Claudia, plays this art restorer at a museum in Chicago. And um, it's this very elegant, but also way too long opening of her like siphoning egg yolk to help kind of polish this I love that. You didn't like the opening credit sequence? It was a little long. Um, and then, but by the end of it, was she like kind of horned up for art restoration? Oh yeah. She was like mid orgasm, like mid restoration like orgasm. smacking her lips being like, oh, okay. Yes. And then as she's like walking away with her boss, she's like, oh my God. Art. Yeah. <laughs> That's been and all these years and like fucking art. <laughs> falls into this makeout with him as he's firing her. But you just, for me at least, I just really could not tell if that was intentional or who was doing what, if she was just attacking him. I did not get it. And the same thing is true later when her brother, Robert Downey Jr., and her dump the turkey innards on the sister. It really, really, really looked intentional, but the movie didn't treat it as intentional. Just a couple things in here that are not well directed. Totally. Yeah. Well, the, it's weird to kind of like place this movie in time. I guess it was like one of my issues with it. Like the idea of her making out with the boss. Like I almost thought that was some sort of, you know, sort of empowered gambit to be like, Oh, well if we kiss, then like you can't fire me because then it would be, you know, some sort of office place misconduct or something, but the movie like never gets into that. And then, you know, on the other end of the spectrum too, you bring up the, the climactic meal that they have, the, the reveal of some pretty, 
pretty dated uh, sort of uh, gay politics uh, or homophobic politics uh, at that table there. Uh, I don't know. This movie, to paraphrase the Bare Naked Ladies, uh, it's so 1990, but it's 1995. Um, but now I, I feel like we've ruined the game, which is earlier you texted me. I can't tell if you would adore a movie like this or despise it. Well, I said that halfway through watching the movie, and I think by the end of it, I kind of knew where, like, what you would say about this film. But I, I don't know the the first thirty minutes of it. I would say with Claire Danes, who I think is great. The it's so bizarre that she's in this movie so briefly, um, and, and she's great. And there's no reason that like, why would you like? Why would you introduce the the daughter? who's going to lose her virginity if we really never like interact with her again, other than like a, a, an odd phone call sort of in the confusing middle of this movie. Yeah. Um, I love Holly Hunter. This is a really interesting time to have Robert Downey Jr. In a movie it's post Chaplin. Is he still, is he kind of falling apart around this era or is he, he on the comeback? He has uh, openly stated that he did heroin throughout this movie. He, looks he is it. recorded on when he is on on film here. He is high on heroin. Wow, home for the holidays, indeed. Now, when you say home for the holidays, <laughs> what is it that you mean? <laughs> yeah, do you mean heroin for the holidays? Uh, he his performance in this is. I I don't I don't know. Um, it's another. I think it's, it's another, bad. Yes, I think it's another miss by. Jodie Foster because you have two things happening at once you have the kind of movie that has this very specific idea of family um, that kind of goes to something like Big Chill or just like people with a past where everything they say is kind of a reference to something that happened already and they have this kind of coded language and there's all these like old grudges that are kind of poked at by inside jokes which i sometimes enjoy that kind of writing but this movie it is just floodgates it's just that for 90 minutes to the point where uh my wife sarah was just like i don't i don't know what the fuck they're talking about um and part of that i'm glad i'm not alone no well and part of it comes from and you can tell this and then I, i read uh and it confirmed it um they're improving a lot which yeah, I totally. just do not think you can have a movie that is a bottled up drama unfolding at this clip and have people improvise. Like not since like Mistress America have I seen a movie where people speak this fast and this esoterically, but like Noah Baumbach movies are written to within an inch of their life. It's not like people kind of umming and aahing and making up nicknames on the spot. From the director of The Beaver. Comes. Have you seen The Beaver? <laughs> No, I think you I think invited me to go see the beaver with you. I, I would adore no. doing the beaver on this show. <laughs> Movies where puppets take over people's lives. William Goldman's Magic, The Beaver, Chucky, and one of the Chuckies. We've done the first Chucky. We can well, do- there's like eighteen. Are more. there any more? <laughs> um, <laughs> are there any about his seed? yuck okay where were we 
It's a great cast. I mean, Anne Bancroft and Charles Durning are the parents. Um, I really do enjoy Charles Durning in the movie. We can talk about that more. Um, Dylan McDermott is in it. Uh, David Strathairn is in here for like two seconds. The Goot appears for a minute. Um, oh, yeah. The Goot's in it for sure. And he's definitely like the spiritual sequel to uh, They Didn't Say Life Was Gonna Be Fun. <laughs> yeah. Big show reference. Um Geraldine Chaplin, so... Charlie Chaplin's daughter, is the crazy aunt. That was hilarious. That was the only good part about that. When I say good, it was the only part that I really followed in this film, okay. and I thought it would have was was full of dramatic tension. Right. That's when, of course, the aunt admits that she's in love with her sister's husband of thirty years. And yeah, sorry, kissed him like thirty years ago, and it like changed her life. The kooky ant has a past with Charles Durning. Um, I think we hinted at this earlier, but not, did not fully unpack it. We thought this was a children's film. When you said, let's do Home for the Holidays, <laughs> I was like, that's the one with Jonathan Taylor Thomas, where he has trouble getting home for the holidays. First you said, what does that mean? I don't get the expression. And then you said, <laughs> I think that's the thing with Jonathan Taylor Thomas. In fact, Jonathan Taylor Thomas, not in this movie. And uh, Holly Hunter getting home for Thanksgiving, not the crux of the of the drama here. No. Um, not a children's That's film. home for Christmas. Right. You, of course, know. So, yeah, I wanted to like this movie because of the cast and because I Same. generally like a movie where a bunch of people get in a house and just kind of talk shit. I enjoy that. If you pitch this movie to me, it sounds like a good movie. It does. And uh, critics liked it at the time. Yeah, I noticed that too. Why? That's what I don't get about this movie though. Because on one hand, it it's trying to be this very like edgy art house, you know, talented actors improving their way through the, the, the hellish landscapes of suburban life. But then there's also like these these broad comedy bits like where she's walking down the street after she uh, holly hunter gets uh, she kicks herself out of the car and then like oh homecoming queen whoever in her uh you know her, her bmw convertible pulls up with her like miami boyfriend who also happened to grow up in suburban maryland or wherever the fuck they are uh no. and like, what is that? Like, that's like a when Harry met Sally level, like, oh, you know, my ex-wife is in the, you know, the Brookstone or whatever. And then a lot of the movie takes place after Thanksgiving when Dylan McDermott and Holly Hunter are kind of deciding whether or not they're going to hook up. And Dylan McDermott has this like speech to this guy who's closing the coffee shop where it's just like, <laughs> what kind of movie is this? What's happening? Totally. As the... Uh... As the Chinese translator says in, uh, oh, what a terrible reference, in uh, <laughs> Hollywood Ending, a famous director whose name shall not be referenced on this podcast, there's a strong sense of incoherence. That was a terrible reference. We'll try that I was. I think we got to keep it in because Hannah and her sisters in Another Life would be a quintessential uh, going home for Thanksgiving or should I movie, but we're not. Oh, we're- that's a great point. Well, I think I'm at a place where, like, we can certainly make the references, but we will not be doing those movies on the show. Obviously. So Woody Allen's blind, and he's trying to direct a motion picture. 
but he has difficulty doing that because he can't see. So the translator says to him after seeing the dailies, "Yeah, uh, there's a strong sense of uh, uh, incoherence." <laughs> that really, yeah. And I think there are because this movie there's a strong sense of incoherence. There are things that are kind of accidentally funny or like funny in a vacuum. Like Steve Gutenberg plays the sort of bad sweater over a collared shirt husband of the homophobic daughter who that's cynthia stevenson is that right joanne could be um could be thank you um (laughs) (laughs) and gutenberg is so upset that robert downey jr as tommy has come to the thanksgiving that he's like i didn't know he was going to be here i haven't had time to collect myself (laughs) and he just needs to like stay in the car and white knuckle it for a little bit and he's just, no, I didn't understand. Like, I thought that, like, it was obvious that he was gay and that, but there had been, like, some other business matter or something that the town kind of all knew about. And that's why there was bad blood between uh, the Goot and RDJ. But it seems like it's just like, oh, he, like, got married in Boston. And that's a now here in Maryland, people are losing their minds. Right. Yeah, you have a character who is obviously like a flawed, unlikable character in the movie, but you are meant to empathize, I think, a little with her lot in life, because this is one of those movies, right, where like every sibling's a little right and a little wrong, and you have that character, Joanne, be like, did you ever think about what it would mean to like embarrass us by getting married to a man? And Good Christ. It's like, shut up, Joanne. Yeah. And there's not even that much good like quotable banter either no i don't i don't like, have any you can't understand movie. a damn thing robert downey jr is saying scene to scene to scene moment to moment i would say he's he's just like either mumbling or just like talking so fast and his like physical performance is so large and loud and like not necessarily in the same tone like at some point you think he he suffers from sort some sort of personality disorder Right. Uh, once all the relatives arrive and he's like attacking the car, <laughs> like what's the, what's the end game there, Robert? You know, Colin Farrell says he can't remember making Miami Vice because of the substance issues he was having at the time, but we still have the iconic line, I'm a fiend for mojitos. And Robert Downey Jr. does not give you one memorable line, despite saying 50 times the amount of words. Totally. Yeah, it's uh, it's an odd... The, just the tone of this movie is very odd. And, like, sometimes it's supposed to be sad that Charles Durning is, like, not with it anymore. But then sometimes he's, like, very with it in, like, a comedic dad kind of sitcom-y way. Yeah. You know, when he's, like, watching the old movies and whatever. It's such an odd... I think I liked him just because it's so fun to watch him play the organ and dance. Like, it's always been great to watch Charles Durning dance. Um uh, best little sex workers domicile in Texas. We know, we know that from, um, and oh brother, where art thou? He's he's a great dancer, and he's a great house old... is not a word that we've reappraised. Is it? What? <laughs> I, I I understand why you say sex worker. I keep going. Um, it's a it's just a bit, baby. Uh, but yeah, I think I latched onto that just because he was the only part of the movie that I understood. Even though I think the ending is kind of trite and doesn't work. Like the the final note of the movie, because he's down in the basement, like watching these film reels of when they were all kids, and you've kind of had this movie make the argument, like, why do we do this? 
which I think is an interesting question. Like a lot of, you know, people across the country may be evaluating such things right now after a couple, a year away, maybe of like, do I really want to do this? Um, but then I think a lot of lots of people do because they, they have wonderful loving families, which is great. Lots of people do it and they have an experience and they're like, okay, that was worth it. Or I understand why I do it. And Durning is sort of saying like, even though this is like a, there's a strong sense of incoherence to our family. Um, he's like, but we have these memories and what you have are these things that are committed to each of our own individual uh, mental film reels. Um, and that's where the movie goes at the end. Except their mental film reels don't include each other. So like, how is that a good argument about family? Yeah, I mean, you're tying it up nicely with a bow there in a way that I don't think the movie actually does. Like, I think if anything, it's so much more confusing as to like how compartmentalized these people's lives are without their families. Right. So much so that the, like the Holly, Holly Hunter has like an, like a whole act of this movie that doesn't include the family at the core of this movie. Uh, and then to kind of, yeah, put together these sort of like ghost of Christmas future film reels of, uh, like Holly Hunter and uh, Dylan McDermott going off to wherever. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I didn't buy it. I didn't no. buy anything this movie was trying to do. I, I loved its ambition and I loved the, the kind of vibe of it, but it just doesn't succeed at, at doing that thing or like rendering that kind of heart of like, you know, the mom just does it cause she has to. And like, you know, keeps the whole thing together. Like I loved the, you know, the idea of the Anne Bancroft and her, her ever evolving relationship with her hair and like the wigs that she wears and how right. that's like each character has like a thing that it's poked out at that they like feel self-conscious or insecure about. But again, like, we're not pulled through this movie in a way to see like the growth of these people in relation to those insecurities. And like that, I think could be a more interesting, ultimately like when these movies succeed, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, the big chill or even like the family stone or, you know, whatever kind of, you know, this is my, this is the family that I'm, I'm cursed or blessed with, uh, depending on my perspective that day. Uh, there needs to be some fundamental change. And this movie doesn't have a lot of answers for that. You big family stone guy. I, I think it's an underappreciated movie. I don't think it's a perfect movie, but I think it's a better movie than how it's thought of. Am I weird for confusing it with the upside of anger? Same movie. Okay, great. Um, Christmas movie, though, really should not be discussed on this, on these airwaves. I know, I'm pushing this season. Yeah, careful. <laughs> Just goes to so I, Um I would say this movie is probably... It's probably bad, bad. It's bad, bad. Okay. I'm glad you're not. I saw maybe like a universe in which you were saying like, well, it's a lot of fun. It's and not. It's not. Thank it you. I, I, it isn't fun. It's, it's, it's sad. And, and it's not even that long. I legitimately had more fun watching the ice storm than I did home for the holidays. That's so weird. I did. <laughs> That's a weird thing to say. I like movies, and this one at least felt like a movie that was. I like of. films. Yep. The Ice Storm, 1997. In suburban New Canaan, Connecticut, 
1973, middle-class families experimenting with casual sex and substance abuse find their lives beyond their control. Next stop will be New Canaan, Connecticut. New Canaan, Connecticut, next stop. Once there was a time when families Hello? were strangers. Oh, Hey, Dad. Guy, I'm just confirming uh, you'll be on the 440 on Wednesday, right? So you and your sister can mope around the house and your mother and I can wait on you hand and foot while the two of you occasionally grunt for more food. Neighbors were lovers. You know, I think Elena might suspect something. Is that a new aftershave? Uh, yeah. Uh, musk or something. And America was learning the truth. Are you watching this? Watching what? Nixon doofus. He's a liar. Calm down, I wasn't in on it. It was 1973, and the climate was changing. Do you care to play? It's strictly volunteer, of course. A key party? The men put their car keys in a bowl, and at the end of the evening, the women line up and fish them out. How are the parental units functioning these days? Dad's doing his up-with-people routine. Is that good or bad? It's just you develop a sense if things are going to work out or if they won't. I have a husband. I don't particularly feel the need for another. Sometimes it's not worth the mess. From acclaimed director Ang Lee. Based on a novel by Rick Moody. It is directed you ever read by Rick Moody. I have. It was nice. assigned by our beloved college professor Jonas Agee. I enjoyed reading Rick Moody. He's a good writer. What did you read? Garden State or this? No, uh, a short story collection, uh, Fireman? Fireman something? Oh, cool. <laughs> I really like his weird novel, uh, The Hotels of North America. Mm. It's like written in uh, these like fake Yelp reviews of this guy like sort of starting at really nice hotels and then working his way down to like reviewing sleeping in his car in an Ikea parking lot. Really? Yeah, it's a good it's a good novel. Nice. So then it's directed by Ong Lee, who in 97 is coming off of Sense and Sensibility, but also his uh, Taiwanese movies in the early 90s, The Wedding Banquet and E Drink Man Woman, all kind of are these like literary sort of medium-sized melodramas like based around uh, family events. So it's always weird in a day when we think of Ang Lee as a prodigious visualist first to remember like how literary and contained he he started but this is where he's at in 97 right he of course also did Brokeback Mountain where do you want to crack this nut I think I just want to crack it perhaps in contrast to Home for the Holidays it has a similarly stacked cast probably a more stacked cast to be honest um Right. And it also, if I may, uh, flirts with a, a certain uh, air of incoherence. Uh, I don't totally agree with that. Um, I think the there's something odd about the initial cut from the Tobey Maguire train lights coming back on after the ice storm and then cutting to a totally different scene without any visual note that it's going back in time to showing you how we got to this moment. I don't know that that was the most... I don't know if that played totally, but... But you figured out exactly that's all what I meant. was happening. And I knew that that was what was well, happening. Well, aren't you just the 
special little man. It sounds like you're also a special little man because you perfectly explained what was happening. So what are you talking about? If it's incoherent. I don't know. Anyway, um, we've got basically two families here, the Hoods and the Carvers, um, who live in, uh, I guess, I was, suburban Connecticut, but these are some nice houses. These seem like some rich families to me. Um, upper middle class, at least. Uh, the Hoods are Father Kevin Klein, Mother Joan Allen, um, son Toby McGuire, who's at boarding school, high school boarding school in New York, and daughter Christina Ricci. The Carvers are uh, Mother Sigourney Weaver, who's having an affair with Kevin Klein. The families are all friends. Um, Jamie Sheridan is uh, sort of the distant traveling father of that family, whose absence kind of makes the affair seemingly possible. And then, uh, don't worry, he'll pull his life together uh, during his stint on e, uh, Law and Order. Uh, I first saw him in the league where he played in that like park league and embarrassed Mark Duplass, and then he's in Spotlight famously. <laughs> um, right, he's just kind of like a big scary dude. Don't tangle with Jamie Sheridan characters. No, he's not very scary in this movie, but you're still like looking at him and you're like, I don't, I don't. I don't want Kevin Klein to like try to wrestle this guy for Sigourney Weaver's affections. That wouldn't go totally. well. And then the two Carver boys are the famous Leo Peterman, Elijah Wood, and <laughs> and what's Little Man Tate's Little name? Little Man Tate, <laughs> Adam Hanbird. Adam Hanbird is like I'm gonna look. I'm gonna take the world's weirdest Elijah Wood performance. I'm gonna make mine <laughs> so much weirder. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, oh, Elijah's doing that. Well, I better do something even stranger. Yeah. <laughs> um, they, they're kind of one-upping each other, not only in the fact that they're, like, brothers who are close in age and, like, playing with Christina Ricci as a sexual object, but I also think the performances, too, like the Elijah Wood lead-up to the climactic Elijah Wood moment uh, <laughs> is is unhinged. Uh, yeah, but then I would also say that the little man Tate bathroom sequence with Christina Ricci is also unhinged. She's playing with them as sex objects too. There's just some like, um, oh, she's not she's not being preyed on. If anything, it's it's her it's her game. Yeah, this is just like I wouldn't say it's like inappropriately portrayed. It's just like deeply, deeply uncomfortable, like pubescent sexual. Whatever they're trying to figure out is not something that as a, you know, 31-year-old man tossing on Thanksgiving films, you're aching to explore. <laughs> totally. But Chance enjoyed this more than I'll be home for Thanksgiving. Let it be. Of course. Dude, this is such a better movie than Home for the Holidays. Do you really disagree with that? I don't disagree with you that it's a better movie. Get out of here. Okay. <laughs> You've seen I movies just disagree before, right? that. When it comes to, like, children pulling down their pants in front of each other in the bathroom, this one's just, like, a, lar- a little harder to stomach. Sure. One of the things that I really like about this movie, in juxtaposition to Home for the Holidays, is I think the performances are all very expertly calibrated. And I definitely want to quibble with, like, where how the families interlock and whether that's kind of repetitive and whether I wanted more. I think we'll talk about that in a minute, but I really do think from Joan Allen to Sigourney Weaver to Kevin Klein um, and Jamie Sheridan too. I think these are 
pretty like expertly delivered performances because everyone's kind of trapped in the exact same uh, post 60s um, upper middle class sellout bubble, basically, um, where the, there's the parents are like going to the climactic thing at the movie is not Thanksgiving, but rather a key party, um, a swing and key party. Yeah, there's a fuck room at Alice and Janney's house. <laughs> um, and everyone's kind of in the same predicament of sheer emptiness, and yet they're all responding to it slightly different ways um, in the performances, not necessarily the script. Sigourney Weaver, you just kind of get that, like, I'm miserable, but... I can compartmentalize this affair into something that must make me feel good or else I will leave the house without speaking a word. And Kevin Klein right. is trying to do this like weird dance where he's like, no, 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 it's okay. I can do both things. I'm a good dad. I'm Kevin Klein. Um, and Joan Allen is of course like in the wife, the, you know, put upon wife role, as you mentioned earlier, but every part of her being in every line delivery is fighting with a sharpness against being in the put upon wife role to like where she comes back into the party. And when she sort of like Patrick Mahomes shovel passes the keys back at Alice and Janney to be like, fuck, we're doing this. Um, I really like all the performances, whether they have anywhere to go in the end, tough to say, but a lot of great actors delivering really great work. I think it is really funny to see Sigourney Weaver handle Kevin Klein because I think the what you get from casting Sigourney Weaver is just like the knowledge that Sigourney Weaver can take care of herself and has tangled with way worse than Kevin Klein <laughs> and like whatever weird goal he may have. He's a dangerous uh, woman. So, yes. And so when she kind of decides to run errands and leave him there with that bottle of vodka, like there's something so funny about that. Yeah. I love how it explores the limits of his charm because no one is a defter kind of conversationalist and papa than Kevin Klein. And I mean, nobody's a more convincing Ulysses S. Grant either. <laughs> so I was thinking about like, Wait, where is Kevin Klein at in his career right now? That this he's doing Ang Lee's I uh not Iceman Cometh, Ice Storm in ninety seven and Wild Wild West in ninety nine. Is that like is that on the upswing? Because Wild Wild West was supposed to be a big deal. He like slept off the hangover from the awards fodder from Ice Storm and then immediately got in a plane and shot Wild Wild West. Let's look at this. So we're <laughs> we're ten years out from the uh kind of unmatched like Oscar win from a fish called Wanda for that's an 87. Where are we at? IMDb load. How does Dave fit into this? That's 93 with Sigourney. So they had that chemistry. She's manhandled him before. <laughs> uh, of course. Yeah. You have the grand Canyon. You know, I was just going to say grand Canyon. You had that incredible joke the other day uh, about, Grand Canyon being like a litmus test for racial politics and like liberal seeming Hollywood. It's true. It is. No, it totally is. I just thought it was such a funny call out. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame does some voice work. I don't know the French Kiss Princess Caribou. Caribou, sorry. 
Emperor's Club is coming. DeLovely is his Oscar bait in 04. Failed Oscar bait as Cole Porter. Weird career, can Kevin we Klein. Do, can we do a genre about uh, like wife swapping and do Indecent, indecent proposal. proposal and Kevin Klein's star turn in Consenting Adults? Sure. Uh, I'll think of a third. If only we hadn't done this movie already. I think that Ang Lee has like an almost fetishistic attention to like sensory details in this movie when it comes to ice and water and uh, just like the ambiance of this uh, approaching and ensuing ice storm. Um, It is kind of cool how he's captured like ice becoming like water becoming ice. I think it takes a lot of uh, skill and craft, which obviously Ang Lee has, to just be able to direct these really intimate scenes with the sounds of just lashing ice water uh, right. for an hour of the movie, whether it be like Tobey Maguire running to Penn Station or um, Little Man Tate and Rossini Ricci in the basement. Uh, there's just a lot of attention to detail, which is great. It's a very finely crafted movie. Um, yeah. What would you like to critique it for? How unfun it is to watch? I th- Much like I have the kind of issues with Home for the Holidays of not seeing like a ton of change and growth uh, from any of the, from a lot of the main characters. This one, I think that there are, of course, characters who have kind of the, that thing happens to them. And, and many, for many of the characters, it's the wake up call of the spoiler alert death. Um but also it's like, what does the Tobey Maguire, Katie Holmes thing do it do for this movie? Nothing. It's just like something to kind of Like what give is the it- David Crumholtz stuff? Like what is that? Why is that there? Like I think the two the two really compelling storylines are Elijah Wood and Little Man Tate batting Christina Ricci back and forth or thinking that they are doing that, but actually she's like playing with them. And then juxtapose that with the way Sigourney Weaver is playing with Kevin Klein and the fallout for their respective spouses. Cause then it's just like two sets of children kind of like figuring out what intimacy is in this harsh structure of American social life. Right. My, yeah. My big problem is there's just not enough variance. If you, I think there's a movie that actually could have used like I'm curious. I'd be curious to know what the novel's like. I haven't read it. It could have used two more like different characters because by the time you cross the boys and Christina Ricci and Kevin Klein and Sigourney Weaver and spoiler alert, Joan Allen and Jamie Sheridan at the end, you just have basically every member of the two families uh, doing like empty sexual exploration. It's the same. Everyone's doing the same thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, it has a very bleak outlook on like what physical intimacy is and does, uh, which is, I mean, yeah, like I get that that's the point of it, but I also think to your point that seeing different people get different things from it, I guess from this interpretation of like what human contact means, like, why do these people pursue sex at all? Like, it doesn't seem that even for that fleeting moment that it's fun. Like, why are Kevin Klein and Sigourney Weaver continuing to have their affair, you know, if it's not 
interesting. Like it should be interesting for at least for Kevin Klein, and then you know it, that can be contrasted with an indifference on the other side. I think there's an interesting period piece element just to uh, these like late 30s, early 40s parents who like lived through the 60s. Just like how much like liquor goes into a party like this and just like the vinyl and they're like trying to listen to music that their kids would like um, and it's Watergate's happening and the country's falling apart. And some of this is like laid on pretty thick in terms of social commentary that goes further than being super interesting. But just in terms of like how boomers behaved in this moment um, in like really self-destructive ways is I think, I think mildly interesting. But again, I just want to see other people's lives. There's this framing device that's clearly from the book about the Tobey Maguire character reading Fantastic Four on the train. It's some beautifully written um, insights about how like that comic was different than other comics because they became more like a family. So a lot of the plot lines had to do with the power they had to um, delude and hurt each other, which in a, in a novelistic Rick Moody sense, I bet works great. But Tobey Maguire keeps referring to like um, walking through doors to other lives or spending time in a negative zone or crossing thresholds into like a world beyond. None of these people have any, they, they break sort of moral agreements, but there are no other lives they can get to. Not for any single one of them. There is no world beyond for any of these characters, which is kind of the bleakest thing about it, but also made me question whether that theme really resonates. Totally. Yeah. And I think, too, the fact that this movie kind of like lacks that. I mean, I guess Henry Zerny is kind of the approach here, but to have no real like uh, planes, trains and automobiles kind of like tethered to the job in New York. I mean, there's a couple of shots where like Kevin Klein's like in an office, but I guess I like don't really understand how a lot of these characters like what their identity is. Like there's the one scene really with Tobe Maguire like in a school setting and it's like, oh, this guy's a fucking weirdo. The end. And that's my understanding of him. And then the whole Libet's Katie Holmes thing like doesn't make a ton of sense because like I don't I don't know. I, I like, didn't feel like even their anti-chemistry like I didn't. I didn't get what they were going for. Like, what is the, what are they envisioning? Like that I think is, is troublesome. Um, yeah. The, the world feels very small. This movie, I feel like reminds me a lot of what I think is more in my mind, more successful in kind of doing this, you know, sort of push back on society's expectations also set in suburban Connecticut. Um, but far from heaven with Julianne Moore. Um, Todd Haynes movie. The Todd Haynes movie, Dennis Quaid and Dennis Haysbert. It's a great movie. Yeah, that movie, like, it's so clear. Like, you have a similarly frustrated housewife at the center of it. But everyone has such clear things that they want, like, such clear desires. At least, like, if they get it, it may not turn out the way they wanted it to. But at least they are, like, chasing something specific. And as fucked up as they may be, or at least in the context of the time period, uh, and as selfish as these actions may be, they're at least in service of something. Like, I guess I, I didn't... I didn't get the line between, you know, Christina Ricci watching Nixon and being disgusted by him and then suddenly like, I'm going to play a cat and mouse game with these two brothers next door. Yeah. Like I didn't get the, I wanted to see the influence more, I suppose, but maybe that's just my super superficial read on this. No, I think you're right. I think you can have 
if you have a movie with eight characters, you can't have all, you can't have like mm, six of them not want anything. You could have a couple right. not want anything to show the emptiness of the experience, but like, yeah, I don't get even uh, even Mikey Elijah Wood behaving so kind of strangely, um, incidentally like beautifully and and weird and like images that will stick in your mind forever. But like, what's Mikey's deal? What's he doing? Yes, exactly. Like to me, it didn't make sense that, and maybe this is just like the you know, the distance between the mediums of something that's written and something that's visual, like a movie, but I just didn't get what Mikey wanted. Like I, I at first, I think I thought that the movie was sort of teeing up this idea that he's heartbroken because he's been cuckolded by his little brother. And that's like the greatest sort of, you know, Greek tragedy sin of all. And, but that doesn't seem to be the, the, the curse that he's dealing with. It just seems to be maybe ADHD or something. Uh, yeah. He seemed just as happy also, to watch TV and hang out by himself than he was to French kids. Yeah. So I don't know. because, And that's the weird thing, too, is that it seems like characters are on wholly different pages than one another, like scene to scene. You know, like I didn't quite understand the tension between the two Kevin Klein and Joan Allen moments of like at one point – She's like, stop talking so like I can focus. And she's like sort of talking about like, if you want me to be sexual, I need to like really concentrate on doing it. And they have that exchange together. But then there's this sort of odd, distant and sort of divergent thing where it's obvious that they're he's lying about having to return a mug to Sigourney Weaver's house. And that's why he's caught his daughter fooling around with their son. It's just such a weird like if they have a, a language that it's like, okay, you need to be like quiet now because this is my, the time I have to do the thing in order for me to give you the thing that you want kind of exchange. Then why wouldn't it be more like wink, wink? Like you obviously know what's going on. I don't know. I didn't buy into how intimate and lack of intimate that they were. Does this make sense? Well, I think what this boils down to is that this script is a, has the themes of a melodrama but it's acted very, very straight and nuanced, kind of like scene to scene. So it becomes this really interesting kind of test of tones and realism and theatricality, which puts the movie in an odd place. It's kind of like walking like an icy tightrope itself of like, if it were like a little more this way, it would just be like, well, is this like just a film stage play? And if we're like a little more this way, it would be like, is this Anne Bancroft screaming at everyone? And I don't know, maybe that's like, Maybe that's the early Ang Lee thing. Instead of um, experimenting with like 3D and 4K and 48 frames a second, he's sort of experimenting with the absolute craft of having people at the top of their game be in a room communicating line to line with like the sensory experience of the ice outside. But it's still, you know, the way that Gemini Man like doesn't come together on a script level, like this one doesn't quite either. I thought I I found uh, Clive Owen's father relationship with both versions of Will Smith far more compelling than Jamie Sheridan's uh, one with Little Man Tate. No, you didn't. I did. What's Clive Owen's name in that movie again? He has a very funny name. Do you remember? You don't remember. Nor I do can't I. remember. On. It's some Bond villain name. It's like uh, it's like Vector Maxim or something. <laughs> 
Yeah, I was thinking like like Lars Steel or something. <laughs> That's a little pornier than I think it is, but let's see. Hold on. Uh, oh, Clay Varus. <laughs> Very good. I feel like Clay and Lars are like in a similar. Yeah, Varus and Vector. We were somewhere in the ballpark. Yeah, I love that for us. Okay. I like being in the ballpark with you, man. Um, anything else to say about the ice storm? The quintessential Thanksgiving film of our time. Though very little has to actually do with uh, Thanksgiving. Ultimately. You know, they have like a weird little four-person Thanksgiving, which is always kind of like, oh, is it better to just have a nuclear family? And you watch this movie and you're like, I don't think it's better. Nope, that's not it either. <laughs> <laughs> is it going back to New York <laughs> to... Have drug David Crumholtz? Is that better? Nope. <laughs> nope. Get back on the train. The there's no way out of this movie. This movie, it, like, there's no better option. There's no door to walk through. And the end of the movie is just Kevin Klein crying while Joan Allen goes, Benjamin, hey, Benjamin. And it's beautifully acted. And uh, thematically, I have no idea. It's so sad and weird and blunt. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I know this, and this movie's kind of a classic, isn't it? I would consider this like people reference this as like serious adult drama from the nineties. I I don't know if it is quite a. Cl- it's def- It is all those things you just said. It's definitely a serious adult drama empirically from the nineties, but it also feels like Oscar bait that didn't hit because it ends with Kevin Klein cr- just crying. It's not. It doesn't have that. It did. It did do pretty well at the BAFTAs. Did it? I know you don't consider international box office or accolades to be worth anything. Well, but. the Brits have never seen a grown man cry before, so that yeah, they were stiff up. It was lip. that they were. Very, they would have preferred that it didn't have all that Elijah Wood sliding around in the ice. But if Kevin Klein's going to cry in the movie, I think um, it's an easy good bad. I think it is a quintessential good bad. I think there's so much quality and such good acting and like even the cinematography's really really good. I just don't score really the, good that like, pan flute. Oh, I love the pan flute. Who did the score? Keep talking. But I just don't think it has the heart there. You know, and I think one of the reasons that I at least watch movies is for some plucking of the proverbial heartstrings so this one didn't 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 get that for me and thus it was not that entertaining i did tell him to keep talking and so he he went down the road of i watch movies for the heart uh other movies now we need to give pay homage to managing editor uh charles barfield for making a joke about how we should have watched prisoners for this episode (laughs) Which is, of course, when the little girl gets kidnapped. (laughs) Yes. Um, Nothing looks more like my mom's cranberry sauce than Paul Dano's face in Prisoners. Oof. Yay. Um, I had shouted out earlier this week Pieces of April, uh, which is Katie Holmes again trying to make uh, Thanksgiving dinner for her estranged mother, Patricia Clarkson. I remember it being good. Yeah. Early early aughts indie movie, right? Early aughts New York indie movie, yeah. 
I was toying with uh, the oath, although which was like that Ike Barinholtz, Tiffany What's Haddish kind of like Trump era comedy about Thanksgiving politics and like a weird Secret Service thing. I always thought that looked interesting. I've never seen it. Polly Shore's Son-in-Law is a Thanksgiving film. Netflix's Friendsgiving, not interested. And then her sisters, we were not going to do. Um, Trey Edward Schultz's first film, Cresha, but Noah wanted to go light and upbeat, so we did the Ice Storm instead. <laughs> Noah wanted to go with movies people have heard of, so we didn't pick that. People know Trey Edward Schultz. It comes at night, waves. H24. Oh, it comes at night, I know. Um, Here's the last what one. What a weird little cult you are. Keep going. Last Waltz. Marty Scorsese's Last Waltz. Technically a, thank- a Thanksgiving concert film. Wow. And what, what consolidates the rancor and inextricable ties of a family more than watching the band fall apart <laughs> for the final time? Incredible. All right. Oh, Robbie. Now stay with me. Die Hard with a Vengeance. I'm just kidding. Is that okay? <laughs> is That's Live Free or Die Hard a Thanksgiving film? That would is require it? me remembering anything that happened in that movie. Yeah. Is Gary Marshall still alive? Is Thanksgiving in the works? <laughs> I think I think you know the answer to that question. Um Charlie Brown Peanuts Thanksgiving? Some people are, Sure. Yeah, whatever. We weren't going to do that, obviously. Now, let me ask you this. How many planes, trains, and or automobiles will you be taking to get to your Thanksgiving? Yeah, automobile up to Seattle. And then that good little wholesome... Seattle? <gasps> it's only Is that an a Tim hour. Allen? Oh? No, it's never Tim Allen. <laughs> it's an hour further than Portland. But the cheap flight. And then we do that oh. wholesome layover in Vegas. This sounds like a disaster. And then you fly to Epley? <laughs> yeah. We land at 1.30 yeah. in the morning. God. Well, See I ya. hope this this <laughs> sto- this cross-country storm that they're talking about doesn't materialize. Just one car ride for me, though. Thank God. Yes. Jersey. I think that's got to be it. I'm thankful for you, brother. And you, brother. <laughs> <laughs>